Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. As usual, when we have a visiting priest at the ICC, I am customarily outranked as I am this evening. So Father Stephen will be offering our opening prayer, but before he does so, we'd like to introduce our speaker this evening. So Kelsey, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Father Hezekiah, and it is my delight to introduce our speaker this evening. Our speaker this evening is a priest of the Orthodox Church in America and is Pastor Emeritus of St. Anne Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Father Stephen Freeman studied classical languages at Furman University before going on to earn a Master of Divinity from Seabury Western Theological Seminary and a Master of Arts in Theology from Duke University. Father Stephen was originally ordained to the ministry of the Episcopal Church in 1980. He served various Episcopal Church parishes until his conversion with his wife and children in 1998. He was ordained to the priesthood the following year. In addition to writing a popular blog each week titled Glory to God for All Things, he is the author of numerous published articles and the book Everywhere Present, Christianity in a One-Story Universe. He also hosts a podcast, Glory to God, on Ancient Faith Radio. So please join me in welcoming to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Stephen Freeman. Welcome, Father Stephen. Yay. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's a blessing to have you here with us. Thank you for, for making the time, the sacrifice to be with us. If you could open us up in prayer. Very good. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of blessings, giver of life, come abide in us, cleanse us of all impurity, and save our souls, O good one. Amen. Amen. Father, we'll turn it over to you. Well, we'll just go leaping on. It was a delight to be asked to do a presentation on the book, The Way of a Pilgrim. I suppose if you were to measure what is your favorite book by how many times you've actually read it, then, and I wouldn't have thought of this, but in making preparations for this, I would have to say then this is hands down my favorite book. The reason is, is that it seems that I read it two to three times a year, at least, and uh, on average, which is, I guess, peculiar. There's nothing else I read like that. But I find it to be calming, uh, soothing, and something of a place of shelter. The, the book uh, has a rhythm and a beauty and a simplicity to it that, for me, mirror the inner life of the heart. I'm a nighttime reader. I have a little iPad mini on a swivel arm at my bed. I discovered that if I tried to read with regular books in bed, they fall on your head when you get tired. And it just has a way of not being very soporific. So I've got a little mini iPad on a little swivel arm, and I read things through Kindle. And I think I've got maybe four different editions, at least three, 
of uh, The Way of the Pilgrim, different translations, some of them with very, very good commentary. So I have thoughts on what makes a better translation than others, but I read them. It's the kind of book that if I wake up in the middle of the night, and I, there's a lot of things I don't want. I don't want to read a novel in the middle of the night. That'll keep you awake. Sometimes I like to read history because if it's, you know, good, boring history, uh, it'll put you right back to sleep. Oftentimes, if you wake up in the middle of the night, you might have something on your mind that's distracting. And I simply find this book to be calming. And so I dive into it wherever I was when I last, you know, had it open and continue reading for a while. And it just, you know, it's, it's not a sense of putting you to sleep like you're bored or anything. It's just there's a sense of tranquility as I read it. So this is something I thought, gosh, I've read that more than any other book. But having said that, this evening, I would like to focus on three things. And I have to apologize. You may find the handout useful, but I'm only going to use it once or twice. I'm not much of a handout uh, kind of guy. But anyway, these are three things I want to focus on this evening. The first one is a brief theological background. That is to give some context for thinking about what's going on in the book. So a theological background, very brief, to give some context for thinking about what's happening in the book. Second, uh, to look at the question of what does this book have to say about the Jesus prayer itself, or the practice of repetitive contemplative prayer in the life of faith. And third, I want to spend some time looking at a bit of controversy that surrounds the book, because uh, gosh, it wouldn't be orthodox if it wasn't if it didn't have some controversy about it. So I want to look at that controversy, and perhaps with that issue, a bit of a warning sticker that, from an orthodox point of view, should always be put on the book, even though it's our book. Nonetheless, I would put a warning sticker on it. So, theological background. Think with me for a minute about this passage from St. John's first epistle. It should be very very familiar. St. John writes and says, this is the message we have heard from him, that is from Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have communion with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have communion with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So that's from 1 John 1, verses 5 through 7. Now, I altered the most common translation of this passage, and I will admit it's a pet peeve, but the most common English translations use the word fellowship to translate the Greek word koinonia, or kinonia, as the Greeks say. And that's a very mistaken translation. It, it means fellowship if you're speaking something like maybe 14th or 15th century English. But in no way does the modern English word fellowship even come close uh, to rendering uh, koinonia. Koinonia means an actual commonality. It come, its root word is koinos, which means common. Koinonia is the, the commonality of life. Fellowship can mean an infellowing of one another. It can mean a communion, but now it essentially means coffee hour or something like that. Let's go to the fellowship hall or 
whatever that uh, people say. And so when they read this and, you know, these are my complaints are sort of like when evangelicals read the Bible, they think it's talking about them and it's not. If the word koinonia was consistently translated as communion throughout the places it occurs in the New Testament, it would baffle many evangelical Protestant readers because it would be talking about something they almost never talk about this commonality of life. So the foundational understanding that I'm talking about of our relationship with God, particularly in Eastern Christian thought, is that we only have true and full existence and being through and in communion with God. For God is life, and we only have life through communion with him. And so we understand, for instance, sin to be a break or rather a diminishment in our communion with God. I mean, if God is life, then the characteristic of sin is death. Uh, so we're warned in the garden, in the story of the Garden of Eden, God says to Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That oftentimes is misunderstood by some Bible commentators to think that God is warning Adam and Eve of an impending juridical punishment. That is, if you eat this, I will kill you. And that is absolutely not what he is saying. And if you want a reference for that, I would suggest uh, reading St. Athanasius on the Incarnation. He does a very good job with this. This is not a juridical punishment. This is the natural consequence if you sever communion with God because God is our life. This is God saying to Adam and Eve, eating this will damage your communion with me and will result in death. For instance, in the Eastern Church, in the Orthodox Church, we frequently don't use the language of original sin and punishment, and much more commonly simply talk about mortality, that we are born not as depraved people, or even with original sin and the sense of an inherited guilt, but rather we're born mortal. We're born into a world uh, that is subject to bondage and death. And I know there are Catholic writers uh, who say the same thing as well. There's more commonality about that than there would have been, say, a hundred years ago in talking about these things. But this is foundational, that what it is to live is to have communion with God. What it is to sin is to break communion with God and unleash death at work in us. And this is a fundamental theological background. In the handout I gave you, there's a short quote from Father Thomas Hopko of Blessed Memory. He was the dean of St. Vladimir's Seminary in New York and probably certainly one of the most preeminent uh, Orthodox theologians of his generation. But in the introduction to the Shambhala edition of The Way to Pilgrim, he underlines this very same point. He says of the book of The Way of the Pilgrim, he said, it affirms, first of all, that the source, goal, and content of human life is not spirituality or religion, liturgical ritual, or ascetical regimes, but the living God himself. It tells us that life is communion with God, personal, direct, immediate, real, painful, peaceful, and joyful. What a wonderful, wonderful sentence. And very much, I can hear Father, Father Tom's voice in that. It tells us that ceaseless prayer 
in pursuit of God and communion with Him is not simply life's meaning or goal, the one thing worth living for, but it is life itself. It tells us that Jesus Christ is this life and that constant, continual, ceaseless prayer in His name opens the door to divine reality and puts us in immediate contact with the one who is the source, substance, and goal of our life and our very life itself. So he just said what I just said. It's one common witness, and this is foundational. So if you will, this understanding should be our primary takeaway from reading this book. It's sort of a, a, a diving into the deep end of communion with God in this wonderful account that we have. It's interesting, the book itself, and I, I noted this in a little in the handout, we don't know who wrote the book. It's never had an author's name associated with it. We don't know if it's a true account written by a pilgrim. My own opinion on the matter is that it is fictional, though based on common experiences, but a fictional account written in order to teach the life of prayer, and particularly uh, the way of life of prayer in using the Jesus prayer, which is pretty universal across the Orthodox world, but was undergoing something of a renaissance in the 18th and 19th century in Russia, initially through the work of St. Paisius Velishkovsky, but it spread from there to places and figures like St. Seraphim and Seraph, or the Optina elders, the elders of Alam, and some of the other great spiritual centers in Russia. Paisius Velishkovsky spent time on Mount Athos, traveled from there to Moldova, and then from Moldova to Russia, but very much represented something of a, a leading figure who taught and nurtured a revival of what can be called hesychasm, uh, that is the life of, of the, the inner life of stillness and of continual prayer, particularly the use of the Jesus prayer. So I'll, I'll think with this some about what it has to say about the prayer itself. The story of the pilgrim begins when he hears the verse from St. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, in which St. Paul says, pray without ceasing. And I love the pilgrim. He's so simple. In a very practical way, the pilgrim wants to know how you can do this. And to me, it's somewhat comical in those early chapters uh, as he describes the various answers he gets. He goes to this church, to that church, asks this question, asks that question, and he gets all these answers. And then many, uh, he also talks about hearing a lot of sermons on the topic of prayer, all of which seem to be unhelpful. And I think, oh my, of all the unhelpful sermons I've ever preached, and I just felt nailed when I read that. So he hears all of these sermons that do not answer it. And, and they're clearly displayed as fine and fancy words delivered by people, mostly priests, who don't know what they're talking about. And so it's worth noting, though, and I like this, uh, one of the reasons why I can read this book at night and be peaceful, is he doesn't dwell on uh, the lack in the church. He doesn't start moaning about the terrible state of preaching in his day or the spiritual life of the average priest or whatever. There's really none of that in the whole book which is frankly quite refreshing given that we live in a, in a world that if it's possible uh, to say something uh, hostile, we all seem to find it. Uh, it's such a difficult place these days. But he quickly exhausts all of these non-answers 
and then stumbles by accident across a holy elder. Now, it depends on your translation of the book, The Way of the Pilgrim. Most of the translations are very generic, that is written for generic English readers who aren't used to, say, a Russian vocabulary. But what he is describing, I think that there's a book, uh, one of the, the, the Shambhala uh, uh, edition sort of is very careful in its Russian usage. But what he meets is a holy starets, which is the Russian word that means elder, an old man. Well, this elderly monastic hears his question and then invites him to the monastery. In fact, even the pilgrim says, well, I, I don't need anything. I don't need to go to the monastery. I've got food. And I love his food. He's just got dried bread and a knapsack. And he eats bread and a little salt. That's all he does. I think when I first read this book, I was in college back in the 70s. And it was just this image in my mind that made me want to just grab a bunch of bread, cut it up, dry it, stick it in my knapsack, and go hiking away and, you know, nibble on my bread, eat some, uh, drink a little water, and eat a little salt, and, and do the prayer. Um, it, it, it didn't happen, but it, it certainly sounds kind of inviting. But the elder tells him, come to the monastery. We have holy, you know, elders there. Doesn't tell him I'm one of them, uh, but they know a lot about prayer, and they can teach you the answer to this. So he goes. And here's the key passage uh, when he gets there and the Staritz begins to teach him. The Staritz says, The unceasing interior Jesus prayer is the uninterrupted, continual calling upon the divine name of Jesus with the lips, the mind, and the heart, while calling to mind his constant presence and beseeching his mercy during any activity one may be occupied with in all places, at all times, even while sleeping. The words of this prayer are as follows. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. If one makes a habit of this supplication, one will experience great comfort and a need to repeat this prayer unceasingly so that eventually one will not be able to live without it and the prayer will flow of its own accord. Now that's just the very heart of this book is that teaching of the Sars that this is possible. This little prayer, if you're properly taught and you will say it as I teach you to say it, uh, will begin to unfold all of these things in you. Uh, you make a habit of it, you'll experience great comfort and the need to repeat the prayer unceasingly. I want to go to a contemporary elder of Mount Athos, the elder Emilianos. He was the abbot of Simonopetra or Simonopetra, depending on how you want to pronounce it a little monastery that's sort of built into the cliff on Mount Athos, the beautiful one that shows up in all the pictures. Abbot Emilianos uh, died, I think, in the 90s. No, more recently than that, but he was considered one of the great contemporary elders of Mount Athos. Not yet canonized, but undoubtedly will be. He says this, he was teaching a group. He said, in saying the Jesus prayer, we experience our union with him who is in everything which means that we too are united to everything. In the small amount of time that it takes to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner. There you hear a longer version of the prayer. Have mercy on me, the sinner. We live a complete life, heavenly and earthly. We surpass time and enter into the eternal realm. We enter with forcefulness, like the force of a violent wind 
as an Acts 2-2, into the kingdom of God, and that kingdom enters into us. It's like we mount into the flaming chariot of the prophet Elijah and pay a visit to see the invisible God who dwells in the heavenly courts. We ascend in the flaming and blazing chariot and we enter into the radiant dwelling place of God. I wonder if the elder in the book had described it like that. I wonder if he would have frightened away the pilgrim. But uh, Elder Emiliano is very much in the tradition uh, teaching the nature of the prayer, that simply in saying it, as we enter into it in our mind, in our heart, and uniting with our, ourselves with God, we are also united to everything, and that we're living in that moment a complete earthly and heavenly life. We are surpassing time. We enter into the eternal realm. We enter into the kingdom of God. I mean, just how good is that? And you hear in this as well, both in the elders' description and in uh, Elder Emilianos's description, uh, this theme of communion, God in us and we in him. It's the life of salvation itself. Father Tom Hopko, again, I mentioned earlier uh, and quoted from him, he said that when he went off to seminary, and he was, I guess, a good Carpatho-Russian boy, a uh, name like Hopko tells you they're from somewhere in the Ukraine, but that is when he went off to seminary, his mother said to him, he said she told him three things. She said, say your prayers, go to church, remember God. And he understood when she said remember God, the constant living, abiding remembrance of God in, as oftentimes, the prayer. Oftentimes in orthodoxy, we simply say the prayer. And when we say the prayer, we mean the Jesus prayer. It's like, you know, you enter into the prayer. I was saying the prayer. So his mother said, go to church, say your prayers, and you'll remember God, this remember God. And so the pilgrim, though, goes into a much more detailed account about acquiring, as he'll call it, acquiring the Jesus prayer. That is, in acquiring it as a self-acting prayer of the heart, uh, where it's praying itself, as mentioned when we were starting. And it's very interesting and we'll see in a few moments that it's also the most controversial part of the book. He's given a prayer rope by his uh, elder. It's a uh, chotki. This is a chotki. It looks, and in fact, many translations simply call it a rosary when you're reading the way of the pilgrim, but it doesn't say rosary in Russian. It says chotki, and the word chotki in Russian means knots. That is, knots tied in a rope. This one was made on Mount Athos. I brought it back with me. And the knots, it's made of wool. It's tied, and the knots are a really strange. They're hard to do. I learned it once, and then I promptly forgot it. But we've got a few people in my parish who kind of keep their hands busy in the service tying prayer ropes. It's a common way of making your living on Mount Athos. You, you tie prayer ropes and sell them to pilgrims. But anyway, the knot has seven knots in it, and each knot is a cross. The story told of the original Chotki was that there was a priest monk in the desert trying to keep account of his prayers. He had been given a prayer rule to say a certain number of prayers a day. He kept losing count, so he got a rope and tied knots in it to keep count of his prayers, and the devil kept untying the knots. That's life in the desert. 
And so an angel came and showed him how to tie these knots because you can't untie them. Not even a demon can untie these knots. I've tried, and I'm not a demon, uh, but you can't untie them. They're really quite sufficient. And there's seven of them. Why? Because you can. And, and each knot makes a little cross, so there's seven crosses. How good is that? I mean, so this is a tchotchke. I, they're made of rope. I learned over the years using it that it tends to wear on my thumb. You know, I, you'd think you'd get like a thumb callus on your, you know, from praying it. So I have uh, a collection of just wooden beads uh, from Mount Athos. So there's nothing, you know, particularly sacred that says it has to be a tchotchke with knots made of wool. I bought this on Mount Athos too and blessed it on all the relics they've got there. And I've been using it now for about five years. And it's got little wooden beads and it's much easier on my fingers. So just in case, I, I've noticed lots of Christians these days read little esoteric bits of information and they kind of plug it into OCD and feel like if I don't use the, the, this type of thing, I'm not doing it right when the point is having something with which to count prayers. If you have a rosary, you could do double duty if you wanted to do the Jesus prayer with it. There's no rules about these things. It's just prayer. But anyway, he was given a prayer rope and told to say a certain number of prayers a day. I mean, I think it was something like 10,000. And it's gradually increased day by day, you know, week by week, his elder would increase it. And his vivid descriptions of the process are, to me, among the most charming and attractive things in the book. And of course, they're so attractive and charming that people read it and want to try it. This book, the way the pilgrim became sort of famous in the West, when it became major object or player almost in uh, the book Franny and Zoe by Salinger. So that sort of popularized it. But as just a curiosity, I think the book itself was actually uh, translated and published in English in the 1950s, which is interesting. Uh, there wasn't even a book on Eastern Orthodoxy in English in the 1950s. Uh, but this book was out there. So there wasn't much else to go on other than this really interesting story about using this technique to learn the prayer and the prayer becoming automatic in the heart. So he eventually goes from just saying the prayer to actually picturing the heart in his chest and kind of using a method of forcing the prayer uh, down into the heart. So there's a sense in which the prayer drives the pilgrim, and once it's kind of like embedded in his heart, uh, it drives the pilgrim to seek uh, silence and quiet. And so we learn a bit about another book that the pilgrim carries along in his knapsack that was quoted by his elder and, along with his Bible, and that book was the Philokalia. I read The Way of the Pilgrim in the 1970s and got real excited reading. I mean, when he talks about the Philokalia, I mean, there's a place where he's having a conversation with someone and they say, well, is it greater than the Bible? And he says, well, no, it's not greater than the Bible, but, you know, it'll help open up all of these things to you. And I just thought, well, that just sounds like the best, niftiest book I've ever heard of. And so in the 1970s, the only bit of the Philokalia in English was one called Writings on the Prayer of the Heart uh, from the Philokalia. And in The Way of the Pilgrim, during a dream one night, his elder appears to him and using a bit of charcoal, marks certain passages in the Philokalia and tells him you should read these passages on the prayer of the heart. Well, the book we have is actually those same passages, the, the Philokalia. Since then, four 
volumes of the complete Philokalia have been translated. They're just excerpts from various church fathers on the topic of prayer of the heart and a little wider than that, a little broader. Uh, the first thing that was book ever assembled called a Philokalia was assembled by St. Gregory the Theologian and St. Basil the Great, and they were excerpts from Origen the Theologian. <laughs> but uh, we don't have it anymore. Um, it probably went the way of all questionable materials. But nonetheless, the Philokalia existed in Greek. Paisius Velishkovsky uh, translated it into uh, uh, Slavonic or Russian to read. The edition that the English first English version was translated from was an edition edited by St. Theophon the Recluse, and he cleaned it up. What he did was edit out of this little philokalia the instructions that are very much what the pilgrim is talking about here of the method. There was a concern, and as I move on in talking about the controversy uh, surrounding this book, it's precisely, if you will, pulling the veil back on the method and talking about that and a kind of popularizing this method. So this and this really is a good lead into this third point of the presentation. And it's as I say, it is controversial. Both Saint Theophon Recluse and Saint Ignatius Bryantyaninov, both were great 19th century giants in the Russian Church. Both of them had criticisms about certain aspects of this book. Saint Theophon, for example, who edited his edition of the Philokalia, left the passages out about forcing the prayer. He felt it could do spiritual danger. Saint Ignatius complained that the pilgrim's account described an acquisition of the prayer. I mean, I think it, in the pilgrim's account, it happens in weeks, you know, in a matter of weeks, you know, and maybe a few months. And it's, you know, bingo, self-acting prayer. I mean, boy, is that not just attractive to a modern American? Because, I mean, this is like weight loss programs, you know. I get things now, lose 50 pounds in a month. I mean... I think I could do that, but I would have to just not eat or get me a knapsack of bread. Uh, but 50 pounds in a month, things like that. Well, this is sort of like acquire self-acting holy prayer residing in your heart in weeks. Well, that's what happens to college students in the 1970s when they read this stuff and think, boy, that's for me, sign me up and get me that book in the mail. And, and uh, it's only to discover that it's not an easy read. St. Ignatius says that he was famously concerned about issues of spiritual delusion. That's true, for instance, in his classic work, The Arena. It's very much concerned with the problem of delusion. And it's actually a major theme in Orthodox spiritual writers. I mean, if you're going to talk about experience, I mean, spiritual experience, the single greatest danger is bad experience. That, you know, that you've wandered off into some neurosis, or you've wandered off into some strange ideas, or you've wandered off into your head, or you've imagined yourself to be something that you're not. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy dangers. I mean, I, I mean I'll say this, I, I step on all kinds of toes, but I mean, there's people who go off and sign up for courses in spiritual direction. And, you know, you can't teach it. You cannot teach it. That's not the tradition. It's not the tradition. It's the American way, but it's not the tradition. 
you almost, I mean, the tradition is almost that you have to tackle somebody wholly and force them to tell you something that's of use. And that most people who tell you something are like those early preachers that the pilgrim was running into. They're talking about what they don't know. So Ignatius and Theophon, both of them knew what they were talking about. Theophon had been a bishop who, after a very short amount of time, asked to be relieved of his responsibilities and began to live as a hermit and is mostly known through his his letters that he wrote and a few other editing things he did. St. Ignatius Briancianinov, a great writer and theologian and monk uh, and spiritual father. But both of them were concerned about the problem of going uh, too far, too fast, and wandering away from the path of Christ. And you can see a little of this concern in the pilgrim himself. For instance, his encounter with a young woman said that her father was a member of some sort of heterodox sect, uh, which was probably one of the offshoots of the old believers. Uh, there weren't, there wasn't much of anything else in Russia at that time, but there were various groups of old believers, particularly some without clergy, and some of them could get really wild and crazy. You, if you read a bit the life of Rasputin, you'll get introduced to some of the stranger sects, and they were, if you will, native to Russia and grew out of, of bad orthodoxy. And so uh, it was a great concern. So he, he shows something of that concern. Uh, for instance, when he meets that young woman, he's concerned when he hears her praying that she's praying prayers that aren't quite correct. She's using some wrong words, and that's a real no-no in a Russian Orthodox world. Don't use those words, use these words. So he was concerned about it, and he teaches her the more correct form of the prayers, but he also teaches her the Jesus prayer. And there's also an admonition in his encounter with the blind man, whom he teaches the prayer to, and who seems to gain any number of what would seem like miraculous abilities, like seeing things in a nearby town, you know, like in his mind, that uh, like a church would burn down and he said something about it and and the the pilgrim rebuked him and said you can't see things at a distance the guy said well i see him and when they get to the town sure enough the church is burnt down um but it's interesting the the pilgrim says to him as you do all of this like doing the prayer he said guard against mental imaginings of any sort uh, of visions reject everything your imagination produces for the Holy Fathers strictly teach that interior prayer must be a visionless exercise, lest one fall into delusion. I might say this is something that tends to celebrate, uh, to, to separate Eastern practice classically and some Western practices uh, that use active imagination as part of prayer. The East would always go, no, 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 you must not do that. It should be imageless when we pray. So to the blind man who had seen this church that had burnt in a distant city, he says this. This is really, I think it's one of the more interesting passages in the whole book. He says to him, you can love Jesus Christ and be as grateful to him as you want. He said, but beware of accepting visions as direct revelations of grace because such things can often just occur as natural manifestations. And he says, the human soul is not absolutely bound by space and matter. It can also see events through darkness and at very great distances as if they were happening nearby. You probably didn't know that, <laughs> that the soul 
has these kinds of capacities. And he's he's not saying anything that's outside the tradition. He's, in fact, very much within the bounds of the tradition when he says this, that the soul actually has these natural capacities, and they should not be mistaken for special gifts of grace. He said, it's we who do not give power and momentum to this capability in our souls, and we squelch it beneath the bonds of either the carnality of our bodies or our confused thoughts and scattered ideas. Yet when we focus our attention on the inner self, divert our concentration from everything external, and refine our mind, then the soul finds its truest fulfillment and exercises its highest powers. And this is all quite natural. I heard from my late starts that some of those who don't pray, who have a certain ability, or who suffer from certain sicknesses are able to see in the darkest room an aura of light that radiates out from all things. Uh, the New Age was alive and well in 19th century Russia. So uh, these kind of strange things going on. And he said, and it's so delightful that no tongue can describe it or even compare it to anything at all. But you no, know, he says, well, what occurs during the prayer of the heart is the direct result of God's grace. And it's so delightful that no tongue can describe it or even compare it to anything at all. All physical sensations are base in comparison to the delightful experience of grace acting within the heart. Very interesting. So this conversation underscores perhaps the most common teaching of the prayer of the heart, that is the Jesus prayer, that you'll find in most instructions on the topic. That is the need for an experienced spiritual father to guide you in the practice of the prayer. Now, that's kind of problematic because they don't grow on trees. So I'll bring us to something of a conclusion in, in my presentation tonight, thinking about the actual practice of the Jesus prayer and our contemporary lives, for, since all of us are pilgrims one way or another. So how do we pray without ceasing? The practice of the Jesus prayer, particularly in the contemporary Orthodox world, is nearly universal. We, we teach it all the time when people become inquirers uh, it's just most parishes teach it. It's just very, very common and and is thought of as normative. And, you know, you, you may say the, the little morning prayers out of a book or the evening prayers out of a book, but across the entire day, you should begin to learn to pray the Jesus prayer. So you would say, well, does that mean that all those people have a spiritual father directing them in the prayer? No, it doesn't mean that. It means they're taught the prayer in general, but not taught any particular techniques or even the idea that it should become self-acting in the heart. That might happen. I've actually only known one person who has told me about this reliably. It happened to, and he's a very interesting case. He woke up with it one day. He wasn't yet in the church. He simply woke up one day and it was going on, and he went to actually went to a Catholic priest to ask him, what is this? And he was in New England, and the priest told him, that's the Jesus prayer. He goes, what's the Jesus prayer? And he gave him the way of the pilgrim to read, and he read it. And it kind of led him into some things, and he eventually uh, entered the church. But that is unusual. That is a gift from God. And there's no way to argue when God acts sovereignly and just does something like that. But it didn't last the rest of his life. And I don't even I don't remember what he said now about how long it did last, but it was sort of a a special gift from God, a special grace to bring him where he wanted him uh, to be. 
in the very famous monastery of St. John the Baptist in Essex, England, outside of London. It was founded uh, in after World War II by St. Sophroni of Essex, who brought a group of early monks and nuns with him from France after World War II, and they settled there in England. They, because of a lack of books, when the community first, they didn't have service books, and the community were multiple languages, they still are. St. Sophroni taught them the monastic cell rule of Mount Athos, and so, and they've continued it to this day, so that on on a normal day, their morning service is two and a half hours of the Jesus prayer. They do like a little small set of introductory prayers, and then it's two and a half hours of the Jesus prayer with one person leads it at a time. Usually it's one person with 150 knots on a prayer rope, and then it's the next person, and it goes around for two and a half hours, and they do it again in the evening, two and a half hours. On major feast days, they do the regular hours of the day, uh, Vespers and liturgy, but other days, it's the Jesus Prayer. And uh, the monastery in Essex has, in the English language, been something of a center for teaching the practice of the prayer. I've been a, a couple of times, and what I appreciated most about it was sort of learning the rhythm of the prayer as St. Sophroni taught it. And this is something I've learned that seems to differ between Russian and Greek practice. Uh, Greek practice, if, for instance, you visit any of the monasteries of the Elder Ephraim, who's from Mount Athos, here in America, there's he's got maybe 25 monasteries or so that he started, a famous one out in Arizona. Uh, the Greek practice of the prayer tends to be very, very quick. Kyrie Jesu Christu, but it is very fast, much faster than that. And it's just sort of this kind of fast rhythm. Russian, and I've discovered this said difference between Russian and Greek practice. Everything Greeks do fast, Russians do slow. The Russian rhythm of the prayer is Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us, a sinner, or have mercy on me, a sinner, or in Essex they'll say, have mercy on us and on thy whole world. And there's just this slow thing. In fact, I remember the first time I was there, it annoyed me. I went into this there, and it was almost pitch black in the church, and they're there, and there's just someone going, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us and on thy whole world. And next one. And I'm just, you, you, when you first, it's oftentimes the case when you first show up in a monastery, the slowness and the rhythm of the life is so contrary to our fast rhythm outside. And I have ADHD, so it annoyed me. And it's like it would take about three days and finally I would slow down and begin. Because if you listen to it, that's much more the actual rhythm of the beat of the heart. Unless your heart's pounding too fast. It's sort of this slow breathing rate of the heart. In that sense, it's kind of being natural with it. And um, so, you know, I've when I brought it back to my parish, I did some small groups with people teaching the prayer, teaching them at that rhythm. And I say it kind of throughout the day when I'm not doing, if something else isn't keeping me from it. And to a degree, there's a lot of things you can do that you discover you can do at the same time as you're saying the prayer. So it's it's useful that way. I have known others for whom the prayer was probably self-acting, but they would never talk about it. And that is actually the tradition 
as well. One of the things we get in the way of the pilgrim is a glimpse into the inner life that most genuine contemplatives in the church will not talk about. I oftentimes, if I have a complaint about some time, occasionally about someone, is that they say things that we're not supposed to say, not because the things are wrong, but because they're not supposed to say them. Or if you say them, you say them in private. This is true of all the really good stuff, right? I know that the Eastern instinct is, if it's holy, hide it. Put it behind a wall, put it behind some doors, pull the curtain, hide it. Bring it out, let them eat it. You just put it on a spoon and stick it in their mouth, but don't let them watch it. This is not, you know, uh, holy things need to be hidden. Same thing's true of our heart, at least for the sake of avoiding pride, to hide the things in our heart. We live in a world that, say, since the sexual revolution of the 60s, continuing into the uh, radical sexual revolution of the present, people talk about sex all the time. They post pictures about it all the time. Pornography is a click away, and it's just an insane world. When the intimacy of a man and a woman in holy matrimony, they should never, ever, ever, ever discuss it with their friends. A man should never say anything about his wife in that manner to another man, nor should a woman discuss this with their woman friends. It should never be done. If nobody ever told you that, I did it. I told you. Don't do that. Why? Because it's holy. You don't talk about holy things. You know, if you if God takes you into the secret place, why is it called the secret place of the Most High? Well, there's a reason it's called the secret place of the Most High. And the secret place of the Most High in my life and yours is the place of the heart. So, you know, let God be there. And, you know, there's a way to drive the prayer out of the heart. And let's talk about it. Start revealing to the public world, that which is, in fact, intimate between you and God. So it is necessary for teaching to say certain things. But on the other hand, it should not be that we talk too much about our experience. It leads us, it'll quickly lead us into delusions and things. So I think, boy, I've really kept a lot of discipline to hold this to the minutes I was allotted because normally I can talk for hours and uh, uninterrupted. So now we have time for some Q&A, and I'll try to be succinct in my answers. But any of you who've ever caught me in my lectures and other places know that it's a great discipline for me to try to do that, but I will. So thank you, and I hope this was helpful and something that was hoped for that I, I, I delivered. Thank you, Father Stephen. A real blessing to be with you this evening and very enjoyable to be be together. And you say you do have a few minutes to stay with us for a little bit, just a, a short question to answer. Are you available? I have as many minutes as you all want. I'm retired. I don't have to get up in the morning. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, all right. I'm, I got to get one out of the way because it's the number one question. And that is, what is the best translation of this book, Father Stephen? I like it's an edition translated by Gleb Pokrovsky. You're going to have to spell that last name for us, Father, because we'll be all over the place, you know. Well, you don't know how to spell Pokrovsky? No. No, no I don't. But, but. <laughs> Here it is. Gleb Pokrovsky, The Way of a Pilgrim. It is, it's a series editor. It's Skylight, Skylight Illuminations. 
And I got this on Kindle, so it's, you know, that makes it Amazon pretty universally there. It is annotated and explained. I can't remember now that I think about it. He, they, the vocabulary is churchly vocabulary, but the notes are really excellent, uh, frankly. And uh, it's, I mean, the other edition that I mentioned that Hopco wrote a forward for, the Shambhala edition, is, is a good translation as well. But uh, it doesn't really quite have the same notes and annotations that I think Gleb Pokrovsky went to St. Vladimir's Seminary, but I don't think he's a priest. Uh, I don't know. So I don't know anything else about his story, but I I have found the notes to be accurate and useful in it because uh, there's actually I mean, this is like a plunge into 19th century Russian church culture, you know, and. I mean, it's if you read a lot of translations, will use the old Russian and say he walked for thirty versts, v e r s t s, and you think how far is a verse? Uh, I mean, it's not even. It's probably close to a kilometer. It's about two thirds of a mile. Um, I don't know, something like that. But it's the Russians had their own system for things, and some things translate that way. It's a kind of a big complaint for me trying to read Russian literature in translation is that uh, for years, lots of things were bad in terms of just not accurately reflecting stuff. Uh, recent translations of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy done by Richard Bevere and Laura Verhovsky are way superior to everything that's ever been done. So then my Russians just sort of smile at me at church because it's and my daughter is fluent in Russian. She lived in Siberia for a year. Don't ask why. And uh, but you know, she just tells me you you need to read it in the original. I just think that's way too slow for me. But so that's the answer. Thank you. Another common question that we're getting this evening is how old is the Jesus Prayer? Was it in um, the church's tradition from the beginning? Depends on who you ask. <laughs> Some, some monastics would always say it started in the beginning because that's their answer to everything. It, you know, what we have in terms of records uh, of, of mentions is mentions of the use of sort of what later will be called arrow prayers, short prayers like, oh, Lord, help me. Um, oh, God, you know, come to my help or, you know, like little verses from the Psalms being used. Uh, there seems to be, certainly by the time of the fifth century, uh, references to the Jesus prayer. And we just don't know. Uh, the truth is, is that, I mean, the, the, the Desert Fathers wrote a lot of things, but there's a lot of things they don't write. And so does it go back to that? Very likely, some form of it. And you know, as I was demonstrating, there's there's a variety of forms, everything down to just the simple name Jesus itself, or Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, or Jesus have mercy. No one can tell you the right way to do it, you know, if it works. I This is an interesting thing for me. Uh, for a long time in my prayer life, um, the prayer tended to mimic the sound of my anxiety because Lord have mercy on me can sound a lot like I'm anxious and I need you to help me. And I've known a lot of people who want to use the prayer like a just a calming thing to calm their anxieties down. And it may or may not do that way. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this with my Orthodox friends, but I sometimes uh, I have appreciated the narrative 
prayer of the rosary of Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us sinners now in the hour of our death, that when the noise of my anxiety gets wrapped up in the Jesus prayer, sort of like getting a rope wrapped around the axle, it quits being what it needs to be, and I'll just change and do something else. I may use the, the Marian prayer from the rosary. Uh, the, the more common uh, Orthodox prayer to the Theotokos is, Most Holy Theotokos, save us. And in Essex, I might add, uh, they throw that in for, you know, several decades of the prayer rope. Most holy Theotokos, save us. Also, I like when you're there, uh, all of the monks and nuns pray in whatever their language is. And there's many languages in that place. So I, when I was there, I learned the Jesus prayer in three different languages. So besides English, it was sort of fun. So I, I especially like... And I hear this sweet nun's voice. She said, Most Holy Mother of God, save us. It was just sweet, and it calms my soul. But it is, there's things like that to pay attention to with repetitive prayer. It can get, you know, as I say, it can get all tied up in, in anxiety and just makes you feel anxious, and prayer should not make you feel anxious. And if it does that, you need to change it or stop it or try something different um, because it's not supposed to do that. It's not magic, and it does. it is different with different people. Uh, sometimes just the little arrow prayers, it's just verses from the Psalms. Oh, Lord, makes, make haste to help me. That's actually one of the earliest recorded versions, these short repetitive prayers. I wonder if anybody had the, uh, had the question, the Protestant question of, Weren't we taught by Jesus not to do repetitive prayer? Yes, that question did come in, Father. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad because I wanted to answer it. Yes, he taught us to do that, but he's referring to a practice among the Gentiles in which it's like thinking that if I say this enough, I get the God's attention. And if you're saying the prayer, rosary or whatever else, Jesus prayer, anything, with the idea that by doing this, you're going to get God's attention, you're doing it wrong. It's not about that. This is about not getting God's attention. This is about getting your attention. It's as simple as that. It's getting your attention and keeping it. Getting your attention and keeping it. I'm a married man. I'm not a monk. Um, but I know there are times in my married life that I need to pay attention to my wife. Okay? And for it not to wander somewhere. You know, what techniques do I use to keep my attention on what she's saying instead of wandering? One, I turn off the television. You know, B, I put down the book I was reading. Uh, any number of things. I look at what she's saying. I try to listen. These things that are there. I mean, this is just, this is simply the experience of Christians through the many centuries of learning, of trying to hold our attention on God as a means of communion with him. It's about communion with him. I mean, I would jokingly say to an evangelical, we say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Evangelicals say, Lord Jesus, we just wanna. And um, a lot over and over. Any of you who've been <laughs> in evangelical backgrounds know exactly what I'm talking about. Lord Jesus, we just wanna. And there is nothing wrong, by the way, with just talking with God. 
if you can just talk with God and maintain conversation with him without ceasing, you've done a very good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. And it, it, so you shouldn't think that just written prayers are the only kind or memorized repetitive prayers are the only kind. This is simply a way of holding our attention, capturing it, and holding it in the presence of God. Uh, and anything that does that, if it's, I'm going to say orthodox with a little O, meaning if it's correct and true and not some sort of spacey, you know, strange, non-Christian-y thing, then it's good. You know, and this is a, a safe way of doing that that has been proven. Uh, there's a sense in which the, the proof of the Jesus prayer uh, of its effectiveness and usefulness was settled long ago. It's part of the life of many, 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 many saints, many, 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 many martyrs. I love, you might put this down as a note. There is a YouTube video of an Orthodox priest, Father Roman R-O-M-A-N, Father Roman Braga, B-R-A-G-A, Father Roman Braga, uh, a talk he gave at St. Ignatius Orthodox Church in Franklin, Tennessee, uh, back, I think, in 1995, but the YouTube video is available, and he talks for about 45 minutes on prayer. Father Roman was imprisoned uh, with a number of others in the Petest prison under Ceausescu in Romania, Three of his years were in strict solitary confinement, and it was in his strict solitary confinement, he says, that he learned to pray. So he says, I bless my prison, for there he learned to pray. The Patesh prison was an experimental torture prison for priests and intellectuals and others. It was a terrible, ter it's the worst, Solzhenitsyn said it was the worst thing in all of the communist gulag was the Patesh prison in Romania. But Father Roman came out of it, no doubt a living saint. Uh, Father George Cauchu, who lived and served in Washington, D.C. later, uh, and died a few years ago, also another great living saint. Another, a number of others were uh, went through there as well. A tremendous story. But watch that video. You will learn more in 45 minutes on prayer from a man who learned it the way you and I never, ever, ever want to have to learn it. But if you will, he knows what he's talking about. This is this is prayer from the saint's mouth. Father, just one or two more questions. Uh, sure. uh, Hannah's asking the question, can you explain what you mean by the by the prayer becoming self-acting? Yeah, it, and the, 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 uh, the pilgrim describes this in the sense that instead of, that it can, can reach a place and it, it in which it's it prays itself automatically is that it is automatically in your heart saying lord jesus christ son of god have mercy on me that the prayer is, is praying itself and it's more like you're then paying attention to the prayer that's simply happening all the time and as i say this is rare and this was part of the controversy of trying to guard people against trying to make that happen uh, but it does happen it is certainly part of it, it has a place within the tradition. And as I mentioned, I know an individual uh, for whom this came as a gift out of heaven, just out of the blue. But it's, that's what it is. The prayer actually prays itself. I will say that you, you, as you begin to acquire it as a habit as you practice it over time and over the years. And it will have a way. You know, when you stump your toe, and those funny words come out of your mouth that you take to confession later? 
right? That is your brain triggering your lizard brain that stores curse words. Uh, a terrible thing, you may have a stroke and only your lizard brain can talk. And so you see little sweet blue-haired ladies who taught Sunday school cussing like sailors in a, in a nursing home because a stroke has left them unable to access normal speech and only the curse words stored in their lizard brain. Well, prayer is actually stored somewhere else in the brain as well. I've seen stroke patients, uh, even a patient who suffered from uh, multiple infarct dementia, which is, means your brain's turned into Swiss cheese uh, full of, of holes, who could sing, could respond to song, could respond to prayer, but couldn't do anything else. Uh, it was very sweet. I ministered to him to the day of his death, but it was sweet. I would sing to him. I would give him communion. I would pray with him. He could say amen. And, and this was, you know, which is a testament to uh, God who was so wise that he put prayer somewhere else. So this prayer can actually acquire a kind of habit about it. Uh, I might add, by the way, you can also acquire the habit of not cussing. Uh, cussing is just a habit. It, learning to not cuss will also help you uh, not be angry so much because it's the same part of the brain does the same things. Uh, fear, anger, sex, a lot of these other things are rooted in this part of the brain. It's one of the oldest parts of the brain, usually called the lizard brain, or because I can't remember the Greek, probably means lizard brain. Uh, anyhow, but, um, you know, nurture this, store it up. Think for a minute about, and I'll give you this, this is a wonderful image to carry as well. St. Paul says uh, in Ephesians uh, that we should sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always and for all things unto God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Make melody, he said singing, making melody in your heart. My wife does this. She gets up in the morning and she's singing. She sings all day long. She'll sing, but she comes to bed. And I've learned to tolerate it uh, and try to rejoice in it. But singing, uh, by the way, is just, I mean, I, I highly, and this is St. Paul telling us to do this, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he says in Ephesians, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks and for all things. So, you know, I, one of the things I like about song is, you know, when I'm talking, if all of you started to talk at the same time, it's the Tower of Babel, and it's awful. On the other hand, we could all sing the same song and different harmonies and other little things and interwined it. You know, in every description we have of heaven is described with music. It's all, They're always singing. And in singing, you can have this voice so that when it, in Revelations, when it talks about the voice of the whole crowd being lifted up, you know they're singing because you can't lift up a common voice of tens and tens of thousands talking uh, because that's not a pleasant sound, but singing. So they sing to God. And so uh, that's also a good thing to do if you are able to do that and just simply follow Paul's uh, scriptural advice uh, to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. And when you can't do that, you can join in this uh, verbal song of the Jesus prayer in which that verbally entering into our heart, we're uniting ourselves in communion with the song of heaven that constantly sings the praise of God. I might say too, mercy, have mercy on me doesn't simply mean, certainly in the Greek, doesn't simply mean I've done something bad, don't hurt me. That's a kind of a Western interpretation. Mercy, it comes from the uh, eleison, uh, 
And the, in the Greeks hear it, they hear it related to the word elios, that is oil. And so I tell people, when a Greek says, you also hear, Lord, pour oil on me. <laughs> Have mercy on me, and your, your oil is mercy. So there's this, this, this anointing. God, I sound like a charismatic. This anointing, you know, that pour this anointing on me, the oil of your Holy Spirit. Pour it on me and in me and in my heart as I lift up my voice and call for eleos, for mercy. Uh, so anyway, beautiful images. Well, I think this is a beautiful way to come to a conclusion this evening. I know there were a lot of questions out there. Some of our panelists even we didn't get to a ton of questions over here. But, you know, I feel like uh, St. John, that if we were to continue on if for all these questions, there wouldn't be enough room in, you know, the, in the entire world and, or time in our entire evening. So, so it's been a, a beautiful thank blessing to be with you this evening and to spend this, t- uh, this time in your holy presence. So thank you, Father. Thank you all. Thank God. Uh, I appreciate you inviting me and for your kind hospitality. So, We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.